On the next episode of Way Down in the Hole, we eulogize one of the most charismatic characters in Wire history, Snoop. And we also make the case for why episode nine is a top five all-time Wire episode. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Guns was mine. Which guns specifically, Mr. Hill? Whatever guns them cops took out the truck last year, they mine. Even though I ain't touched that iron. Ain't you gotta do the bit. With your limited priors, Mr. Hill, you're exposed to two, maybe three years tops. You'll be well compensated for the time, I'm sure. No good to us, no how. You want three legs. Familiarize yourself with the make and model of the weapons you left in the truck, Mr. Hill. The details matter. I get shot up and in this shit. Don't ask a lot, don't you? Okay, hey, go down Walmart or some shit and see if they take care of you while you laid up for a while. Hey, come on, nigga. So, Van, here we are next to the last episode of season five and the complete conclusion of our rewatch of The Wire. And I have a feeling you're about to clown me for saying this, especially considering, you know, as does everybody listening, my opinions about season five. This episode, Late Editions, is not only the best episode of season five, I think it's one of the five best episodes of The Wire, period. Mm, I see when we wrap things up, we're going to have to go through the five best episodes of The Wire. You're going to give a top five. I'm going to give a top five, okay? And I want to know why you feel that way. Not just then, Jamel Hill, but now. Okay, I'll save the analysis for it, but just know this episode, I do put in that category in high esteem. And I don't know if the first two times I watched it, I felt that way. I felt like it was a great episode every time. Mm -hmm. But when I started thinking about all the most important episodes in The Wire. I mean, this was this was in the top five for me. Uh, what were some of your takeaways from late editions? I have one word. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant episode. We've talked about season five and, and sort of some of our problems with it and how we love it and all that stuff like that. But look, guys, <laughs> this episode alone would be one that would make you reconsider how low season five is on most people's Wire season breakdown list. Uh, but no, I think that when you watch this one, it was very, very fast moving. You know what I mean? And it's much about the guts of the dysfunction. And here you see why the, why the wheel is squeaking, right? Because, you know, like recently I took my car to the mechanic, the guy who fixes cars. It's called a mechanic. I don't know if you guys know that. And so I took <laughs> Thanks my car. Thanks for educating us. <laughs> I took my car to the mechanic. I was going to get some new tires. And... It was an interesting situation with the mechanic, right? Because whenever you take your car to the mechanic, the mechanic then has more stuff that they have to do to your car. You know, he wants to let you know, hey, I'm already spending $800 with you. But he's like, really, if you spent $1,600, you get out of here a lot, lot better. Your car would be like new. Well, real quick, I have to ask you before you dive deeper into the sidebar. Did you take it to a mechanic or did you take it to the dealership? I took it to the mechanic. Okay. All right. Like, like it, well, I just wanted new tires. And so I went to a Goodyear tire. Shout out to the guys over at Creed. Right. But they're, they're a home mechanic shop. So, the, you know, you get your car in there and the guy says, hey, just to let you know, your struts are all messed up. And I got to be honest with you. I'm not very handy when it comes to the cars. So I know what struts are, but I don't really know too much about it. It's like I know how to change my oil. But other than that, I don't know too much about how to do other stuff. But the reason why I talk about this is because the car actually acts funny. It bounces around and does crazy stuff, right? And knowing he showed me a picture of my struts, he showed me why the struts were messed up, how the struts were done, and then gave me a description about what was needed to be done and how it probably happened. That is what this episode is. This episode is the episode why, that you see why Things are so dysfunctional in the courts, uh, excuse me, in the department, where you see why things are so dysfunctional inside the city hall. You see it all, and in the newspaper. And not just that, 
It is the motivations for the dysfunction. See, the dysfunction that the people get has a reason. It benefits someone. Someone gets something from it. So shit not right ends up making somebody else into what they are. They're cutting corners. And that's what I liked about this one. You see all the ways that people cut corners to get what they want and how other people have to pay that price. And the winners of this episode, to me, are people who are too smart to let the corners be cut to their detriment. And I'll talk about who won the episode later because they were able to see before somebody made them into a statistic. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a great perspective on this particular episode because uh, it, it is it, there is a temptation to believe a dysfunction a dysfunctional system can only be toppled by meeting it with dysfunction or yeah. bending the rules or like if it's corrupt then the inclination is for you to believe, oh, I need to be corrupt too to be able to survive and thrive. And for that matter, maybe undermine this system, get the get the better of it. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that it just adds to the layers of dysfunction and nothing really gets accomplished. Or the win is so minimal that, you know, I, I felt like the overarching question for this season, but that was particularly clarified in this episode is, in the end, were the means worth it? Mm. Was it worth it to do all of this, knowing what the result, if you like, if you told McNulty and Lester, the end result of you guys doing all this is going to be this, would they have been able to live with that? Would they have still made many of the colossal, colossally bad decisions, exercise such poor judgment throughout this season? Would they still have done it? if it led to what it led to. You know, it's interesting. I think this episode, yes. Next episode, no. Mm. So hmm. I, I think if you, okay. b- based solely on this episode, second to last one, clarifications, based solely on this one, yes. If you enter in some of the things that happened in this finale, which we'll get to, then I don't think they'll, they'd feel that way at all. But just how they feel now, the things that get shook down in this one, uh, I think both guys would be kind of kind of okay with having concocted the things that they concocted to get where they are now. That's interesting. Uh, Okay, with that said, let's get into what the recap is. Marlo finally gets got. Uh, Lester brings down his entire operation. Bunk is able to get part low on the Row House murders. Uh, If you recall, Lester had asked him to wait in terms of serving the murder warrant because they didn't want him to get spooked off because they still had this drug operation that they needed to bring down. Uh, Marlo, as a result, tries to figure out who snitched on him because he's able to take a look at the indictment or some sealed court documents that show what the police's evidence is. Um, Now, even though Marlo nor Chris believe that Mike is the snitch, they still say, oh, fuck it, he got to go anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But Mike, using the lessons he learned from both Chris and Snoop, he gets the drop on Snoop and takes her out. It forces Mike to make two very difficult decisions, which all of this we're going to talk about in a moment, cutting ties with his younger brother, Bug, and with his best friend, Daquan. Bubble's story is coming an even fuller circle. He celebrates his sober anniversary, which... I'm guessing is about two years because I remember mm. at some point he said he was 15 months. And so I'm guessing this is maybe some kind of two-year anniversary. Yeah. Uh, and most importantly, though, he finally makes peace about what happened to Sherrod. Gus is continuing to be hot on Scott Templeton's lying-ass trail. He has another reporter looking to Scott's stories. He figures out from Norris that Scott lied about Daniel's throwing Burrell under the bus. And he lied about the details of the homeless vet story. Speaking of uncovering lies, Kima dimes on McNulty and Lester to Daniel's. And uh, which, in a way, I know some people might be feeling a way about her doing that and saying, I can't believe she would do it or be surprised. But just remember, back in season, I think it was season one or season two, when she had a chance to send Weebay and the other person uh, who tried to kill her, she chose to play it honest. Right? She mm. was like, sometimes things got to play the, the hard way. And Bunk was trying to get her to finger Weebay because they didn't have all the evidence that they could to get him. And they were trying to get her to kind of help Bunk him was, out a Bunk, little bit. Bunk was trying to get her to do what? He was, tr- you know what? Are you going to be what? a child about this? I hate you. I hate you, man. Whoa. Weebay's been in jail that long, huh? Whoa. You know what? Oh, I, okay. All I right. can't stay hey, look, look. I guess I walked right a, into that. Right, I walked right like, into that one. Like, yeah, I get, Man, look, why it's, are you it's, such a child? <laughs> I'm not trying to be a child. I'm just saying, you know, we bay. People like stuff. It's look, if nothing wrong with it. You know what I mean? People like stuff. <laughs> Amber Rose said that about Kanye. 
I can't stand you. Oh my goodness. Oh. Anyway, anywho, that is what goes down here in episode nine. But of course, we would be remiss if we did not take a deeper look, a character deep dive into Snoop because mm. Snoop met her end in one of the the most powerful wire scenes in the history of the show. Uh, her death scene with Mike was exceptional, and it's one of the many iconic lines in this series. How my head look, Mike? You look good, girl. So let's talk about Snoop uh, Van. Her character, while in many ways you can argue, I mean, she was obviously a supporting character, but a very different type of supporting character because she was so real and so powerful. And I'll get into her background a little bit later in trivia. She was in many ways playing herself. Yeah, to me, people often talk about the limitations of a character that has one dimension, but sometimes that one dimension is good, right? You know what I mean? Sometimes it's like almost like James Jet. The thing, James Jet was really only fast, but damn was James Jet fast. Go look him up, kids. And she kind of she 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 never got another dimension in the wire. And you could bemoan that, right? You could say, hey, it's a character that's strictly here. Oftentimes now in scenes that were tense, she was the comic relief. You know what I mean? But still, though, she kind of played it one way. The way that she played her character, the one-dimensional way that she played it was like it was in a way almost sort of validated by her by her death scene. Because you think that in that situation, knowing that this is the end, knowing that Mike has gotten a drop on her, knowing that it's over for her right now, that you'd see another dimension of Snoop. You'd see some softness. You'd see some panic. You'd see something like that. But no, an unrelenting, centered, methodical, dedicated character to the very end. Oh, well, this is, how, this is how it ends for me. I know the stakes of the game I'm playing. I know how these things go. I'm not going to trip on it. I'm not going to fight it. Every morning I wake up, I realize that this is a distinct possibility, maybe even a probability, you know, depending. And so I, this is my fate. This is it. She took that bullet to the back of the head in the exact same way she approached buying the drill. It's a part of the job, and for that matter, how she how she herself killed people. Right, how she how, how she herself killed people. It's just part of the job. It's a part of the existence of being Snoop. And to be honest with you, that is very important for the overall fabric of the show. Right, it's very important for the overall fabric of the show. A lot of people get killed on the wire; they never see it coming. A lot of people get killed on the wire to where they sort of accept that this is their fate. But still, though, there's something emotional right before it. If you look at the deaths of Proposition Joe and if you look at the deaths of uh, Stringer, both of those guys met a sort of administrator's death where just before they tried to save their jobs, in this case, their life. Stringer goes, okay, let's negotiate. What can I give you? You want money? This is business? Like, let me go, right? Let me go. Uh, Prop Joe, same thing. I'll fall away. I'll get away. These are guys who are used to living it, with the excesses of what their profession has allowed them to have. Snoop is really not. Snoop is a soldier. And soldiers, to be a good soldier, the first thing you have to do is accept that every mission might be your last. Because you have to go out there and be super hard, super dedicated, super focused on mission accomplishment every time. And you can't let the fear of death get in the way of you doing what it is that you're supposed to do. That's not to say that soldiers aren't scared. I've been around a a couple of them and they'll tell you more than anything how scared they were. But what they will tell you is that a lot of times, and shout out to all the men and women in uniform, and I really mean that, I come from a military family. What they'll tell you is that's something that has to be buried down and pushed to the back so that they can continue to carry on for themselves and their brothers and sisters. So when I, every time I see Snoop get done like that, I marvel at the way she just accepts it. She's a soldier. It's a part of her life. And just knowing that there are actually people out there who look at life and death like Snoop Pearson just shows you the difference between the existence that we're having and the existence that they're having. Yeah, and I I would go beyond saying she's a soldier. She's a soldier, soldier. 
Mm. Right. She she needs two of those because of the way that she carries herself. Believe it or not, as many times as I've seen this scene and this and watched this episode, you know what I never gave the appropriate attention to is the speech she makes to Mike right before she says, how oh, my yeah! hair looks. That speech, I could argue, is more powerful than to some degree those two lines, which have become, you know, again, uh, pretty infamous when she says smart nigga. You always was. How do you know? Y'all taught me. Get there early. Why? What'd I do wrong? Chris locked up behind something he done for you. And you downtown with the police. I ain't say a word. Yeah, that's what you say. But it's how you carry yourself. Always apart. Always asking why. When you should be doing what you told. You was never one of us. You never could be. If you go back and look at the the scenes in which her and Chris were grooming Mike, there was always something about him that bothered her. She never really liked him. Yeah. She never really liked him because she could tell that he was not a soldier soldiers. He was not somebody who was just going to do as he was told. He was going to question some things. He was going to have his own thoughts and opinions. And Snoop wasn't cut out that way, which is why in Marlowe's organization, she was perfect. You know, Chris was the consigliere. She was the soldier soldiers. You know, they were both muscle, but they played off each other really well because she would do whatever she was asked uh, asked to do without being told. I mean, she was closer to being Weebae than Chris was because Weebae questioned nothing. Like, he was like, what? I got to kill him? All right, cool. Well, that's not true. Well, well that, it was that one. The, one scene, that one scene one when he scene. was in the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One, that's one. But, but for the most part. That wasn't him. We may, right. right. He wasn't a strategist. He was right. like, this is what needed to be done. And so when Snoop told Mike, you know, always apart, always asking why was you should be doing what you're told. You were you was never one of us. You never could be. And in that moment, I actually didn't think that was an insult. I thought she was actually complimenting him by saying you never could be because she knew there's a certain makeup required for the role that they were trying to get him to fit. And he never really fit that role. Right. You know, he was. Uh, somebody, it was a reason why he was put in charge of the corner because he was meant to be more of a leader. Right. Leaders and soldiers sometimes aren't the same things. It's interesting. A leader is just a soldier with some rank. Now, of course, a boss is different. A boss is someone that stands from somewhere and tells you what to do. A leader is someone that's in the mud with you that you're just following through the mud, right? And so that's definitely Mike. I mean, Mike's situation with them was... You could almost look at Mike like he used them as an internship for what he was, what he would eventually become. He was never, she was right. He was never really one of them. He was supposed, he was at Six Flags when he was supposed to be, uh, you know, working his corner. He was doing different stuff. Like he, he was going through the motions, of course, but more than anything, he was just kind of learning the street. Now, he didn't know that he wasn't one of them. He thought that he was. But as the more that the rules were laid out to him, the rules as laid out primarily by Snoop and Chris, the more Mike understood that he had to be something that existed in the game, but outside of it, right? He's like Agent Smith from The Matrix Reloaded. Now, in The Matrix, in the first Matrix, Agent Smith is a part of The Matrix. He is a guy who makes, who enforces the rules of The Matrix. In the second one, he has been set free by Neo, and he's inside of The Matrix, but more subject to his own rules. That's what Mike has actually become, and that's what Omar was, right? He's somebody that's inside of this system, the street, the game, or whatever, but more making up his own rules, understanding the rules to help him get to some singular sense of satisfaction. And the more Mike learns from them, the more he's at cross-purposes with his own beliefs and his own morals, and the more he's probably figuring out he has to do it his own way. Understand this about leaders. You're a leader if even if the only person that you lead is yourself. So you don't have to have a flock of people to be a leader. If the only person that you lead is you, you're still a leader because you make your own decisions based, not based upon uh, trends or fads or whatever, or rules. You just, you're leading yourself. That's the only person you need. And Snoop, to be honest with you, wasn't that. She was someone who needed the structure. She was someone who needed the order. I would be so interested to know how Snoop, Chris, and Marlo got hooked up because there's obviously some emotional bond between the three of them 
where they are so ready to get busy for one another. And you kind of wonder what that is. From They thought that they were creating that bond with Mike by doing Bugs Dad for him. And I'm, I suspect that Chris has it because Chris has more affinity for Mike, way more affinity for Mike than, than Snoop does. But it, it was fitting that she was kind of so inside of the matrix and got killed by somebody who wasn't subject to his rules. Yeah, definitely. And I think part of Chris's affinity is they seem to insinuate that he understands that situation because maybe he's been through it. The viciousness in which he beats a bug's dad, I think, kind of yeah. leads you to believe that that he had a deeper level of understanding than we even knew. But getting back to... You want um, revenge. Yeah, he wanted revenge on his behalf and maybe to exercise some of his own demons. Mm -hmm. Uh, But getting back to Snoop, you know, the other thing that was brilliant about her character is that I don't think that we've ever seen a character played this way where you have, uh, you know, obviously there is, uh, she's sort of breaking some of, a a ton of gender stereotypes at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. And they wrote her in such an authentic way, partly because, again, she is, she is the canvas that they're writing about from. Like sure. her real life is what it is. And so she was, while a soldier, a very empowering character because here she is a woman very much in a man's game because she's uh, a, yeah. very yeah. much so. She's, she's the muscle. Inform- she's yeah. the muscle. And you never see that really, for the most part, in television and certainly not in film. I mean, you may have female um, heroines and villains and that sort of thing who have the ability to muscle up on people. But this was her job was to carry out some pretty nefarious tasks and do it with a level of precision that is unique to somebody of her gender, just in the sense of how we come to think, think of it. So they kind of broke out of a lot of gender constructs with her. And it says something so much about their world is that there was never any scene where there was any jokes about Snoop's sexuality. Or about well, like, she made a joke. That was it. She made she would make a joke, right? Yeah. Which would which actually kind of made it funny because mm-hmm. she was the one doing it. But there was an acceptance and a respect that was there, and so they never tried to play to something uh, uh, the lowest common denominator. I think that's part of what makes how Omar is constructed to be brilliant is that they had no problem showing him as you know a full gay man showing his love interest showing that he cared but they never reduced him to just being about his sexuality and they never reduced Snoop to being about those things either so it was kind of very uh eye opening as a character that she would she would be written that way i also thought it was uh, you mentioned that you would love to know what the backstory was between Marlo and Chris and and kind of how did they become this this trio i would also be interested to know more about Snoop's own background and so like what is it that happened that made somebody so good at something that was so bad <laughs> you mm-hmm. know what were some of the choices and the decisions that she made where some of it was about to was about survival and she felt like this was a, the way that she could make a, a, a living but she was also very good at it and so right. I'm just very I it made me want to know more about just her as a as a character and I imagine this is she's one of the many characters while people over the years have brought up to David Simon did he ever think about doing a prequel to explain how some of these alliances came to be the other tricky thing about her character is making her equally serious and as you brought up equally comedic because mm-hmm. just the, the, just the way she talked and described situations was was like really funny to me really funny yes I mean that the whole the reason why that nail gun scene is so hilarious is because of the way she talks. It's like she's speaking a whole different language than this dude, but she understands everything that he's telling her, you know, about the gunpowder and all these other things. And he's like, you know, go ahead, take this money. You earn that bump like a (laughs) motherfucker. You earn that bump like a motherfucker, man. Yeah, it it was just, uh, she was just brilliantly done and brilliantly written. And it's hard to believe that, I mean, this is, this is her first acting gig. And mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of hard to to believe because she played herself uh, or a version of herself so well. I know some people might think that's easy, but for any of us, if we were asked to play ourselves, it would not be as easy as you would think. Right. I mean, look, everybody says they can do everything, but once the camera turns on, once the cameras turn on, it's a whole different thing. You see that little guy sliding that camera back and forth, and you're like, "Damn, that bitch is recording me." That's crazy. You know what <laughs> I mean? And it just it just it just changes everything, but. In terms of Snoop, the nail gun scene, I think about a lot because she was fair. Yeah, yeah. You know, she was fair. She think, she thought that she was fair. She was fair. She believed, you know, 
if you work, you eat. And so she she paid the guy, you know? She thinks all of this is fair. She thinks all of this is the way it goes. Like, she really believes in the structure of this. So it's not like she's one of the people out there, and that's the thing about Stringer and the rest of those guys. That's why those guys aren't, right? If you compare them to somebody like Snoop, it's, they're diametrically opposed. He's going to try to fuck you. He's going to try to get, around, get over on you. She's the one that's actually going to be kind of straight up with you, right? In a real way. But when it's your time, it's your time. She says that about the guy. She goes, it's just his time. And she doesn't think it's unfair or fair, right or wrong. It's just the way that it goes. And having somebody with that type of mindset is an asset <laughs> if you're trying to get something done. Oh, yeah. Because they just task. They just go out there and they task. Don't ask why you're sweeping the floor. Just know that it has to be sw- get swept. So sweep it. Don't ask why you have to set this screen. Just go out there. Look, a lot of guys, even a lot of people in these sports leagues don't last because they're not comfortable with just doing the one thing that they're being asked to do. If I'm asking you to set screens and rebounds, set screens and rebounds, you'll be here 10 seasons. You know what I mean? If I ask you to, if I'm asking you to just block, don't catch no passes, go out there and block, you'll be here till this is what we need for the system. It takes, you have to be willing to take on that role. And I've, in any situation, I've seen a character uh, more comfortable and more enthusiastic about their role than Snoop. Yeah, I, I think that's that's all very accurate. And I, tell me if I'm if I'm wrong about this. She reminds me of Bodie. Interesting. Yeah, I can see reminds, you making that parallel. Yeah, she reminds me of Bodie. I mean, granted, Bodie at the end mm-hmm. was much different than Bodie in the beginning. But Bodie in the beginning, I, I'll say this: Bodie as a Barksdale, she reminds me of. You know, mm-hmm. a big a big problem that Bodie had. He just didn't like Marlo, and he didn't like the way he did business. Right. And so that's what allowed him to come to some level of of consciousness where he was just like, you know, this shit ain't right, even though he had done similar things as a Barksdale. But the difference, why I compare the two is that Bodie, much like Snoop, they believe in the system of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They Like Bodie believes it's fair. Like in his mind, it's completely fair to kill Wallace. Wallace is a liability. I know you may like him, but he is. And Mm -hmm. so... Snoop is kind of the same way where, no, this is how things... But there's still a difference, though, because Bodie Mm -hmm. didn't think that it was fair to kill little Kevin. No, he didn't think it was fair to kill little Kevin. And whereas I don't know if Snoop would have given a fuck about it or whatever. Like, she wouldn't have questioned the morality of him doing this. If Marlo told Snoop to do Chris for whatever reason, do you think she could have done it? Oh, that's a great question. You know what? I think... I mean, they're they're so tight. And while I know that she has a different way of looking at things, like, okay, so if you ask me, if Marlo came to Chris and said, I need you to kill Snoop, mm-hmm. I think Chris would hesitate more than he hesitated with Mike, right? I think he would too, yeah. Yeah, big time. Between the two of them, Snoop would be more likely to kill him than the other way around. Mm. I st- I still think that she would, she would, she may not question it out loud to Marlo, She might struggle with it kind of internally, but Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I think she would still do it. Whereas I think Chris, I don't know, I I think he would do it, but I think it'd be far more difficult for him than it would be for her. Mm. You know, I get it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think she, I I think she, I think she busts his head, like without even thinking. Without even thinking. I mean, I think, I mean, she, she, she might feel some way about it, but I don't think that she would have have any thoughts about it at all. I think she would, I mean, she would feel some way, but I don't think she would hesitate at all. Well, much to your question about, you know, I guess along the same lines of that questioning, Marlo, you know, asked Chris and, you know, they pretty much come to the conclusion that Mike needs to be about the paint. If Marlo takes that to Snoop, she only obviously she disliked him anyway, or right. just knew he. It's not that she disliked him; she knew he was a liability, not because he wouldn't do, or not because he was unable to kill, but because he was going to always be somebody who was going to question and and disrupt their system of like orders of order. Period. And so she would have been happy to do it, and like wouldn't even thought about it whether or not she knew he snitched or not. So yeah, there is a. Even though Chris is a psychopath, there there is way down deep there somewhere, he has a sense of 
fairness in a different way. Whereas I don't think Snoop looks at it that way. She looks at everybody as like, this is the cost if you want to play this game. You got to be willing to accept the cost to play it. You're absolutely right. Right. And so whether whether she did something or not, I think if something came down on her, she would be fine with it because she realized this is the cost of the game. Now, with Mike, she could accept that because the reality is she was trying to kill him. And she's like, I was trying to kill you. I can't really be upset that you kind of caught me in the act. So, like, it is what it is. But let's say that she was in Mike's position and uh, realized that, you know what, I'm probably the person whose actions they can't really speak that this would be uh, something I wouldn't do. I understand their position. If I'm in their position, I got to get rid of me too. And I think she would just kind of take that. I, I I do wonder how she's so grossly underestimated, Mike. Huh. Is that a we love this show, but? Nah, not necessarily. But she she really underestimated Mike. Okay, she now goes, in fairness, she goes though, up he, to Mike. Di- he did really, like, you know how when Chris was giving him that speech about, like, how he show up an hour late, an hour early, sorry, sometimes two or whatever. He like advance, advance scouted. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Like, you know, this is January or something like this would be like it's January is college basketball season. And he already scouting his March Madness tournament opponent. Like he was he was on that thing like pretty early. He was. But it was interesting. She tells him no need to bring your iron. I got clean now for you to shave numbers. I'll pick you up tomorrow night. So I think that might have been, that's a fair criticism. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, how would she not know, especially given how much he had been around them, that he wouldn't think that was weird? That he wouldn't be like, well, why is she asking me not to bring my gun? Right. And that like, just seemed like a big tale. Yeah, we got, we got, I wonder if that had ever happened before. We got new guns, serial numbers filed off, don't bring your crumbs. Like, that when Mike's, Mike, the look on Mike's face changed right? Uh, when he heard that, so. You know, that's probably the one mistake. Remember, in The Wire, it's normally a mistake that we can all see that gets you done up. Yeah. And that probably was her mistake. She probably would have been better off just finding Mike somewhere and, you know, lighting him up. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the other thing, too. Maybe, you know, if we want to kind of further, uh, you know, sort of look deeper into the into the setup a little bit, is that with somebody like him, wouldn't it have been better to just with the better play would have just been to get the drop on him somewhere. Yeah. Like a drive-by or something. Like, just something that he... She doesn't like drive-bys. Well, that's true. She did say that. You're right. That's some West Coast shit, according to her. Uh, But, like, just something else. Uh, Although she did do one in in season two when she was on the bike, right? She did one. She came by on the bike. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually true. Yeah. And that was... And she was the shooter and she did it in a different way because she was, you know, dressed very feminine. Mm-hmm. And so nobody, nobody ever thought it was coming. So you, yeah, you might think that they might, that she might exercise a little precaution with Mike because they have shown him the way. Right. He's like, right. he's, he's their, you know, he's like, he's their baby soldier. They've, right. <laughs> you know, they've tactically trained him. So he mm-hmm. might see this one coming. So good point. Good observation on your part. We'll be right back with more Way Down in the Hole. As good as that scene was, I am not convinced it was the best scene in, <laughs> in this episode. It has some major competition. And so with that, uh, let's talk about some of the best scenes and moments from episode nine. What did you have, man? Uh, I love old dog having to take the charge. It's so funny. <laughs> that um, was very funny. Daniels and Lester. Mm-hmm. Uh, where Lester goes to talk to Daniels to get his, uh, to, to get his case up. When Marlo's crew gets busted, that entire scene. Kima and McNulty, where she says, fuck you. Yep. I like that. And with Jimmy becoming Lester and Lester becoming Jimmy. The scene where it is Lester that is drunk. Oh, right. And, yes. And telling Jimmy that all about this. And it is Jimmy that is fretting and talking about the right way to do things and stuff like that. Brilliant how they just, they, they switched. Yeah. And Lester's, of course, the, the best line is when he said, Jardine better be awake too. Because I do believe Lester Freeman's in the mood for love. <laughs> in the mood for love, yep. Um, Mike and Snoop, both the scenes, both the, the scene where she tells him that, you know, come on over, we're, we're going to go kill Walter, and they talk about it, and then her death scene as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, her and Carver back together again. 
where Herc wants all the uh, there's a reunite there's a there's a reunion of these characters in a lot of ways in the last two episodes of the show and you see it again in the next episode. But these are the three best scenes and I can't pick one. Okay. Oh, one more from the paper. Gus's detective work. The whole saga of Gus's detective work, trying to find out how full of shit Scott is, and of course Levy and Marlowe is great too. But these are the three best scenes to me. Bubbles, Bubbles is share when he finally breaks down and shares about Sherrod. Got me thinking about a friend of mine, boy named Sherrod. Been carrying his passing for a long while. Like that memory I had about those summer days in the park. But thinking on that made me smile. But Sherrod is, is more of a hurt. But not, as, not so bad like it was. Ain't no shame in holding on to grief. As long as you make room for other things too. So thank you for listening. Thank you for letting me share. It had been a long time coming. Um, you wanted that scene. You want to see Bubbles. You just want to root for Bubbles. You want to see Bubbles get through it. And they gave you that right there. Mike's goodbyes to everyone. Tough. That's gut-wrenching. Tough. I think... And- I mean, they're both, think about both of those scenes, saying goodbye to Bug and to Daquan. They're both heavy. They're both super emotional. I would rank the Daquan one more emotional because when he brings up the piss balloons. (laughs) You remember that one day summer passed? We threw them piss balloons at them terrace boys? You remember just before school started up again. (laughs) You know? I took a beat down from them boys. I don't even throw a shadow on it. <laughs> that was a day. Y'all bought me ice cream off the truck. You remember, Mike? Yeah. Because what happens is, in that moment, it forces you to think about the fate of everybody mm-hmm. and what happened, right, to all of these kids. We saw Randy's in the group home and has become what he most didn't, what he most feared, right? right. He's become... This this bully and this this thug, he he becomes something he he wasn't. Naaman, who makes you know, and that's one of the best scenes in this episode as well. You know, yeah. is is finding out what happened to Naaman, and you go down the list. You know, Mike is now a killer, and Daquan is now headed to a, a life that I mean, I think we we all see this one this one coming. It's like he's living on the street and living. You know, he's found his tribe, so to speak, but we see his life coming to an end, kind of at least metaphorically, until maybe it actually does come to an end. When you think of, you know, even Donut. I mean, it's just like all of them, nobody, it panned out for nobody but Naaman of all people, who might have been the most likely, I'd be like, that dude, ain't no way he knows. He ain't gonna yeah. make it, right? Yeah. So I didn't think he would necessarily end up like his father in the sense of like he wasn't gonna end up as some like, you know, super thug. But for sure, he was on at the top of the list is definitely down to get killed over some dumb shit. But but you know why it didn't happen to Naaman? Because Naaman has something that the rest of the characters don't have, even Mike. Naaman was introspective. He is very self-aware. That is so true. Naaman was able to find somebody he trusted enough to admit who he really was and what he really needed. So everybody else, Mike was just trying to solve problems, how to keep bugs safe, how to do this. Like Mike's not looking inside of himself. Mike's a robot. He's going, he just knows what he, what he doesn't want to feel, which is taken advantage of and exploited like he's been in this past, right? Naaman was able to look at all of this and go, yo, I need an escape. Like he, he, he tells it to, I think it's Cuddy, and I think it's maybe Carver or somebody else, or maybe it's Bunny. I can't remember who it was. He goes, like, she wants me to be my dad, but that's just not in me. I need something different. And fortunately enough for him, there was somebody there to listen to him and give him a chance to be something that he wasn't. Daquan never had that. Daquan didn't have anybody. Like, Daquan didn't find who he was. He find, he found who would accept him. Right. So it's, it's so, and Naaman was able to say, hey, all it is, it ain't for me. Anybody else giving me an out from having to do this, whatever it is, I'll do it. The last thing you see with Naaman before this one, you see Bunny coming out to Naaman going, yo, get up, let's go, you get ready. And Naaman's out there eating the cereal. Like, come on, let's go. And what you see is that Naaman was able to humble himself, really, 
which we didn't think was possible. So that's why it was different for him. And that's why and that plus, you know, the 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 fortuitous meeting with Bunny Colvin, that's kind of what he was. Yeah, no, that that that's all true. And that's why the, the scene with Daquan, like it, it most affected me because you knew as soon as he says goodbye to Daquan, something horrible is waiting for him. And you felt the weight of that. And even though they got into a lot of mischief, they were just kind of corner boys in training when they were all kind of together. They still possessed a lot of innocence, despite the fact that they did not. They were living in this environment and trying to survive. And so him reminding Mike of that was so powerful about that scene is that you don't know if Mike actually remembers or because it's been so long and so much has happened in between then to each of them. Or if he doesn't want to remember because it's a painful reminder for him, too, of like of what used to be possible for them. Oh, like I think were, he trauma blanked. You think so? I, oh, I think. Yeah. he. Oh, yeah. like I, I I've, I've witnessed this before and I don't want to really get into. I just because it makes me emotional. But I remember a, a cousin of mine who was delivered to his mother having his mom try to remind him some of the things that his father did to him, things that I witnessed, and he could not remember them. I have never in my life seen anything like this. He could not remember. I'm like, yo, I was there, dog. Like, he's like, nah, that never happened. And I'm like, he could not recall. And for the, and, and you think he was just bullshitting? He wasn't. I remember the whole day, He's like, what are y'all? Nah, that ain't never happened. Just trying to turn me against my dad. I'm like, bro, we saw it. Like, I'm, I was right there. I was right there the whole time. And my mother told me about the fact, my mother, you know, is a mental health lady. My mother goes, uh, that happens. He doesn't, he, there's too much that's happened to him. In mm-hmm. order for him to function, he has to push it down. So when I saw that, Every time I see that scene, it's a hard scene because it's like true to life to me. I'm sorry about that, guys. But like, yeah, but it's just it just reminded me of something. No, that's um, good insight. In terms of other scenes, we were talking about naming Bunny's awkward run in with Carcetti (laughs) because Mm -hmm. Carcetti, you know, he has become everything he said he wasn't going to be. Mm. He has become that dude. And uh, so that was, you know, that was a, a, a important run in. Also, Clay <laughs> telling Lester how he and Levy, you know, worked hand to hand to scam these drug dealers into pouring their money into these endless city projects that wasn't going nowhere and him copping to what he, you know, to basically milk and stringer. But I love when Clay says, tells Lester, you ain't nothing but a shakedown artist. Like, yep. wow, look at pot calling kettle. Or, uh, you know, you can buy a round. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes, that is classic Clay Davis. Uh, also, Kima confronting Carver about being in on McNulty's kind of scam. I love Even though, that. Yeah, I love that. Even though Carver didn't know, clearly he didn't know the, the full extent of what it, what it was. But when she asked him, you know, when he turned in Colicchio, when he had to rat on a fellow officer, I thought that was, you know, very insightful. It also clearly was a huge indication about like what she was about to do. Uh, now, the Marlowe, my name is my name speech. Talk, motherfucker. He just, you know, say that you need to step two in that. I don't know. He just running his mouth so. You call me a punk? It was bullshit, man. You ain't need that on your mind. What the fuck you know about what I need on my mind, motherfucker? My name was on the street? And we bounce from this shit here, I gonna go down in them corners, let them people know. Word did not get back to me. Let them know Marlo stepped to any motherfucker, Omar, Barksdale, whoever. My name is my name. Yeah, is that is that your favorite? Well, I got through a tie, remember? The jail scene, Mike's goodbye, and bubbles and bubbles is shared. They're all those are the three, those are the three way tie for me. Yeah, and, and that's why getting back to earlier when I said that this was, you know, top five wire episode, because you you really have four huge scenes. You have Snoop stuff, you have the goodbyes, my name is my name, and you just say, Oh, Bubs. Right. Right. So you have like four just powerful, like crazy powerful scenes. If I had to vote on one, I think I would vote for Marlo's speech Mm. because some of it is about degree of difficulty. And some of it is also about an unexpected outburst from somebody who normally doesn't do it. Like Bub's Bub's getting emotional. Happens frequently. 
Totally. Snoop going out like a soldier, not surprising, right? Even though, again, it's punctuated by two incredibly memorable lines. The goodbye scene, powerful, gut-wrenching. But again, kind of expected within the storyline to some, to some degree. Marlo going in is like, he does not do this at all. Shows no emotion, generally speaking. And if he is showing some level of emotion, it's usually among something that's like utterly ruthless. Uh-huh. But in that moment, you learn more about Marlo in terms of what was, not just what was important to him, but his deep insecurity than you had probably since he came on the scene. It was like, wow. And then the way he punctuate, my name is my name. Like, it was just, I mean, it was really powerful and that he was so on it that he's just like, nah, we got to correct this right now. Omar's dead. And he's like, go down to the corner and tell him. I'm like, he did. Like, what mm-hmm. they gonna tell him? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But it was just like, whoa. You know, he took that intensity to another level. So I, I probably you know what he had? for that one. He had the mama mentality when it comes to drug dealing. Shout out to our fallen brother, uh, rest in peace, Kobe Bryant. So the mama mentality is a single-minded focus and dedication to perfecting what it is that you do and being the best at it. Along with that, everything else comes. So it's not I'm playing basketball so that I can buy my mama a big house and do all of that stuff. Remember, Kobe never needed that. Yeah. Like he, you, you, you know what I mean? It's I'm playing basketball because for whatever reason, and we know what it was in Kobe, we know about, about his history, about being in other places and stuff like that, how everybody, whatever reason, you have an unwavering, relentless desire to make everybody know that you are the top absolute best. Marlo is not interested, like that wasn't Stringer. Stringer was interested in making, uh, making enough, the most money. You know what I mean? Uh, even Avon was interested in family to a degree, right? And yeah. establishing something. Marlo was just out to be the top dog. Right. That means more than anything. Means more than anything. So the little shit that you would have to let slide to do business as usual, no, I want to hear about it all. I want to hear about all of it. And he defined his character, like you said, in that speech. You don't make decisions for me. I want to know. I'll step to anybody. Don't matter. Don't matter what we put in danger. Don't matter what. They didn't want to tell Marlo that because Marlo would have gone. He would have played right into what Omar wanted was for Marlo to, which was for Marlo to expose himself. But he defined his character during that speech. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, yeah, he did. I mean, that's what, again, that's what made it so powerful. It was just like, oh, whoa, okay. This is this is what has been this guy's motivation. I mean, you knew that based off how much he valued the quote-unquote theoretical crown and being the king of Baltimore. You knew that. But it was also something else that was there, too, that seemed to be driving him with an intensity and a ruthlessness that, he didn't, that wasn't quite crystallized until this particular scene. So I, I think for me, that's the best scene of this this episode. All right, now let's uh, talk about what aged the best. What did you have on your list? The flimsy concept of reform. <laughs> right. <laughs> we are just getting to the point to where we understand that the word reform is often a substitute for bullshit. So when they're talking about reform of the police department, they keep they brought they sold that to Daniels, and Daniels believed it. And of course, before he got the reform, he got the horse manure, and he's now seeing that that's not possible. Sometimes, in order to reform something, you have to break it apart and build it back stronger. Whatever, different conversation for a different time. So, but that's the that's the one thing that aged the best for me: reform, but as a weak construct to progress. For me, what aged the best. Uh, it was two things. One was uh, when Snoop cracked on Walmart, their reputation of treating their employees poorly aged pretty well. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the rap on Walmart. So she yeah. had it nailed when she said, <laughs> when she told Old Dog, hey, yo, take your ass to Walmart with that and see what they do if you mm-hmm. if you, if you you out on sick leave or injured. And also uh, what aged the best, too, is in that Pulitzer meeting, there was only one black person at the table. That age is oh, incredible. Wow. Incredibly yeah. well in all boardrooms, but particularly in particular in, in newsrooms where the executive team and eh, nah, usually not a whole <laughs> lot of black faces, particularly when it when it comes to decisions like that. So those two things age pretty well to me. Uh, anything age the worst for you? 
a couple of things. Just the word Dickensian, and it aged oh the worst. Oh, my God. I was like, the if hit. they say this word yeah. one more time, I'm going to lose it. Okay. The word Dickensian aged terribly. It and did. unfortunately, I'm, this, is a, this is mocking, guys. Shout out to all the people that work there. Fine men and women in uniform. But when you hear the term Walter Reed Hospital now, it has a different connotation because of the whole Trump COVID thing. <laughs> yeah, that's you, right. you, know, you, you know what I mean? But <laughs> right. the people that work at Walter Reed Hospital are, in fact, uh, military. And I have the utmost respect and admiration for members of the military. So, uh, But as, as a joke, Walter Reed Hospital is a little different now. Yeah, Trump took it on a, yeah, on a they're weird They're just turn. saying they, they, got, they got out there and they said oh, they had a lot of press conferences and they didn't really tell the truth. So like, <laughs> right. you, but, but once again, following orders, military people. Following orders. That yeah. is exactly right. Okay, uh, those are good things to point out. I, nothing that stuck out for me. However, I did have two We Love This Show butts. Let's do it. So one, when Alma is trying to get the quote from Daniels, who was hesitant to talk because he'd been burned by Scott Templeton. She asked him after he said, today's a good day for the good guys. And she was like, could you be a bit more substantive? Now, I'm not sure a reporter would put it like that, to be Ooh. honest, when you're talking to a source. I think she might say, or a reporter might say, hey, can you elaborate on that? Can you give me a little more detail? But she basically let him know his answer was bullshit in the most obvious way. And I was like, damn, <laughs> I don't recall re reporters being all that, you know, Having that type about of gumption. Gumption, yeah, especially right. to an official that you you need something to. It's not like heeding to authority, but you need something from this person that is minute. And she's just like, well, I'm going to need you to say something better. <laughs> like, basically. Right, right. <laughs> also, as I said, Marlo's speech. Best scene to me in here. Mm -hmm. However, how is it that Muck waited until they was in jail to tell Marlo that Omar was talking all that shit about him? Aren't they around each other quite a bit? But it came out during the course of their conversation. So why would it never come up before? Like, oh, okay, the way in which Muck said it, because clearly, okay, we have been working under maybe a little bit of a, the assumption that Chris had pretty much let word be known. Marlo is not to know that this dude been talking shit about him in the streets. I might have made that assumption, right? Because I told you that was one of my issues before. I was just like, so all these little lieutenants, all these quarter boys you got, nobody tells you that Omar, when he robs them, has said, you a bitch, come to the streets. Nobody. So they wait to jail and Monk, the way, the casual way he said it, it was clear that Chris hadn't passed that directive. So why did you wait till you got into jail to be like, oh, by the way, dude. And he closer to the street than all of them because, you know, that's his, his territory, his, his supervisory capacity. It just seemed like, I don't know how this would not have come up before. Mm, interesting. Now, you've said that before. I guess knowing that Marlo had to kind of get ghost to stay away from Omar and put some distance between him and the street, I don't have that much of an issue with it, but I could see what you're saying, though. For sure. Yeah, that, that, was, that was always one of my, you know, bigger kind of issues with season five. It was like I, the terror in, that uh, Omar was raising on the streets, I just don't see collectively how that many people could keep it from Marlo. If mm. one person could whisper that somebody, you know, said something disparaging about him and a whole family is dead. I, right. I don't see how Omar being as big of a figure as he is in that neighborhood that that does not get back to Marlo. Right. So, okay, I got you. Yeah, just, 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 my, just my two cents. All right, now we are to file this away for later. If, I don't know if you thought about this. This is actually our last one because the next one, we won't be filing anything away for later. Oh, but I am. Oh, on the, on the final episode, you have some files away for later? Yeah. Okay, I'm impressed. Mm -hmm. I thought that this would be the last. Got creative with it. Okay, all right. Uh, I'll take that. What do you have for this? Just the only thing I could think was just Marlo and Levy. Mm -hmm. And I guess yeah, Jimmy's, Jimmy's investigations of similar looking homeless guy murders in the next episode, that's kind of going to kind of come to a head with, with, uh, with a different type of situation. So what I have is Lester squeezing Clay and finding out who leaked in the courthouse mm, or that there was a leak in that's there. That's a huge one, yeah. That's a big one. Kima telling on McNulty. Also, Mike's decision to kill Snoop, where that sends his story, as we will find out in the next episode. And Hurt, because he just cannot help but cave to the worst of his insecurities, he makes another disastrous decision by letting Levy know that the legality behind the wiretap is a little suspect. Right. Well, it, it depends on who you're talking about that he made that, that decision, decision is bad for. Yeah, because that's it, true. Right. It depends on who you're talking about. But yeah, you're right. 
But it, it, it is on brand for Herc, is that, you know, the reality is that I think part of the reason that Herc did it is because he wanted more credit for bringing down Marlo. Mm-hmm. And because he didn't feel like he was getting it, he just decided, oh, you know what? I'm just going, you know, I'm going to drop this little nugget over here, which, I mean, I get, get that he's playing both sides, but it's really interesting that on one breath, he takes Marlo's number to the police and helps them bring down the person that was responsible for him getting fired, by the way. Right. Right? But then he's going to help the dude that's responsible for him getting fired. I'm just like, well, that shit don't, that, but that shit is hurt to 100 because he is, one, not the brightest bulb in the lamp, and two, that he is insecure and needs praise and needs to be thought of better than he is. You know, when he had that disastrous turn of leadership in the major crimes unit, he was always on Kiba and Lester feeling like he was uh, doing all the grunt work and that they didn't let him strategize and let him in. Yeah, because you stupid. That's why. Right. I, that, yeah. Right. And this is totally hurt. Like, yes, he would completely undermine everything he just did, especially when you see it in the larger context of him having to atone for what how he fucked over with Randy. Right. Mm-hmm. How he fucked things up with that. And then right. it's like then you just fuck shit up again because you're hurt because that's what you do. Anyway, that was a good mm-hmm. one. Uh, for Father's Away for Later, and also Daquan choosing to live with Ever Abbers. That's a huge Father's Away for Later as we get to the next episode. All right, finally on to some trivia. Don't know if people recognize them, but when Daniels and Rhonda go to the evidence room, remember Augie? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, that is Augie. That's the same guy who was so drunk he fell down the steps in season one when mm-hmm. um, Daniels, Daniels... was happy that he landed on his feet. Yes, correct. You know, and he looked relatively sober compared to how he used to be. Sure. Also, I wanted to go back and 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 sort of slightly amend something that I said. It's not a correction, but just more explanation. So we went over, uh, we eulogized Omar. And as I told people then, that that is based off a real life story of the person that is was the real life Omar. That would be Donnie Andrews. So I did a little deep dive and David Simon talked in more detail about him leaping over that balcony. And as I said then, it is a real story. He really did do this. However, here's the amendment I like to make to that story. It was actually two floors higher. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was two what floors What the high. shit? And how he landed, he landed apparently on a rail bed. And it was, out, it was some projects in Baltimore. I forgot the name. I should have written it down. But it was actually higher. They dialed it down in Hollywood. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah, I know. Crazy to even contemplate. But there's the real story. All right, now we're on to the moment of truth, Van. Who won this episode? A lot of choices here, I think. I have Mike because Mike was able to figure stuff out. Mike was able to... with every, So whenever something happens in a wire, there are always ripple effects that end up getting somebody killed. And in this situation, Mike was that guy. Mike didn't have anything to do with it, but he was just too smart. This was the episode when Mike broke Fear of the Matrix. Mm, that that's that's a great choice. For me, who won this episode, it was Gus. Because Gus stayed true. And he could have very easily have let this Scott Templeton thing go a while ago. It probably better off in terms of self-preservation. But Gus's commitment to the truth is very commendable. And it's hard for my respect for him not to grow immensely, and particularly coming from a newspaper background, Wishing there were more Gus's like that in daily newspapers. Because at the end of the day, if worse comes to worse, then he's discrediting his own paper, who has right. allowed somebody to tell lies and embellishments and really undercut their credibility. And, you know, from a, from a larger scale, looking the other way is far easier to do and maybe better for the safety of everyone. Because as soon as people know that you have somebody like that working for the paper, they're going to not say, oh, it was just that person. They're going to think the entire paper is shit. Sure. But finding out the truth matters to him and journalism matters to him. And so he gets to the bottom of it. And so for that, I think, you know, Gus won because he was actually and has been operating under what should be the principles of journalism for all those who are in the business. And that is you know, finding the truth, however ugly and however unflattering. And so for that, I, I commend him for continuing to stay on mission, despite the fact there is nothing good that can come from it. Mm, good for you, <laughs> Gus. Yeah. Way to go, Gus. Uh, Way to go, Gussie, old boy. <laughs> not sure if the reward is going to be worth it. 
<laughs> but yeah, right, exactly. nevertheless, you can say you are on the right side of things. All right, well, that's going to do it for us. Coming up, guys, we're, we're at the end. Uh, final episode of season five, final episode of The Wire. That is what we break down next on Way Down in the Hole. I'm going to try not to cry a thug tear when this is all said and done. So uh, we'll see you guys next time. And as always, keep listening to us and keep watching The Wire. 